the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode 324. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Keith Parton. And I'm Steve O'Connor. Welcome along, gentlemen. Thank you for joining the podcast. Now, um, just as a little uh, a little refresher for listeners who um, haven't uh, haven't heard from you for a while, Keith, where do you fit into this world of technology here in New Zealand? Oh well, uh, yeah, I run a company called Marker Metro, which is uh, we make applications and games primarily for mobile devices. Um, last year, we sold to the marketing group PLC. Still doing the same thing, and I've recently just got back from the Game Developers Conference where we took uh, uh, our own title over there to uh, look for a publisher. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, that's cool. So making oh. our own games again. and Nice. Yeah. Oh, I'll look forward to a bit of an update on that. And um, Steve, where do you fit in into this world of business and technology? Uh, so I run a company called Flick Electric, uh, which is a digital uh, electricity retailer. And so obviously we use uh, tech fairly heavily to enable uh, what we do in delivering customers, um, the solutions we've got. So Great. Well, we'll look forward to diving in a, a little bit more into uh, into what Flick's been up to um, a little bit later during the show. Uh, but first up, wanted to dive in. There's been a bit of news around uh, Toyota and their uh, move into the world of autonomous vehicles. Now, uh, it's they're, they're, um, they've been showing off their Test Car 2.0, which is supposedly a, um, um, a, a pretty tricked-out Lexus. Um, Keith, you're, you're pretty keen on the, on the idea of autonomous vehicles and, and electric vehicles. What's, uh, what's your take on what, uh, what Toyota are up to here? Well, it's it's a pretty interesting area at the moment. Some of the companies are um, promising a lot, um, and the level of promise versus delivery, as you might expect during a massively rapid period of transition with this technology, is changes every day. It seems when you when when you open up a browser and, and look to see the state of it, it's encouraging. I think uh, autonomy is something that's going to happen. Uh, the technical progress will happen. Um, and there will be ethical and regula- regulatory uh, missteps and things to work through all over the world as it starts to roll out, uh, replacing jobs and making things more convenient and affecting the way people travel. So it's incredibly exciting, but also um, we have to step carefully as well. Mm. Mm. The, the One of the things that caught me about uh, you know, Toyota getting further into this space and, of course, really all of the automakers have to be have to be playing in this in this area. Um, is that there were some quotes from um, within Toyota's uh, research institute just around the time of CES, and the the commentary um, went along the lines of the fact that. Toyota doesn't see you know fully autonomous vehicles being happening anytime soon, mm. uh, whereas we've we've had all sorts of other noises. Uh, uh, Elon Musk making some comments on Twitter in January, uh, talking about the their their sort of fully autonomous features uh, starting to roll out within three to six months now. That particular tweet, obviously 140 characters, there wasn't enough detail to give complete clarity. But uh, the the initial question was, you know, when are they going to transition from 
their sort of current level into more of the autonomous features. Yeah. And he was talking about that happening, pr- you know, pretty soon. And you know, number of of uh, automakers, yeah, you know, Ford's in there talking around fully autonomous by twenty twenty one. There's already obviously pretty capable uh, features within uh, Tesla today. Uh, Mercedes has you know some some really great features in terms of taking care of the driving when you're on the motorway. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, these comments in in January were. Would have left you thinking, well, you know, either either Toyota aren't interested in this area, or they're scared of it, or they're behind, or something. Yeah. Um, but you know, here they are now, sort of showing off their their latest stuff, and uh, um, yeah, it's a little yeah. bit confusing, isn't I it? I think if you if you have a a new technology that's essentially a bit of a paradigm shift, corporations can play it. In a few different ways, you can keep your cards close to the chest, saying, "Oh, it's not really going to affect us," but be deeply working on it and ready to announce things. You can do what Tesla are doing and embrace it and be the pig, you know, and be too totally committed to electric and autonomy and make it part of the reason for your company existing. That's kind of the full-on mode, or you can play it sort of in between and say, "We're not sure." So I think Toyota. I think that there's a, a level of, and then there's just general. Uh, capability for these companies to transition their businesses away from something that they haven't done before to something new. So someone like Tesla or um, Lucid, less Faraday Future, some of the companies that are newer and have built their drivetrains around electric and built their cars around technology are more able to start this, but they lack experience, whereas Toyota's got, Toyota's got all the experience and Ford, etc., but they're retrofitting and playing catch-up with a, with a new generation of technology. Um, and those two things coming together from both sides of the industry create this really interesting and unpredictable branding and technology exercise. And it's mm. hard to predict where it'll go, but th- we know one thing for certain, that that, that, that that autonomy will come and who's going to get there first and how it will shake down in terms of having, uh, ultimately we'll, have, we'll still have many car makers, but who's going to be on top? Like the, the change in music or the change in photography, it'll be a similar sort of, you couldn't predict it, you know. What's your what's your pick on what what's going to happen here, Steve? Yeah, I think um, Keith's very much right. I think it is a reflection of the incumbents, and they'll probably move a bit slower. Um, they have a, perhaps an old world view and an established view of the way things have been for a long time, so they're perhaps going to move a bit more cautiously, um, and understandably so with the, the assets and the history they have. I think the new guys have to go bold at it and say, you know, we're going to have fully autonomous very quickly. And I think you know you see. You know, I'm mad car nuts. I read plenty of car magazines, and I think you see the 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 incumbents moving there much more slowly, and they're doing it in little increments. So, you know, you've got radar-assisted cruise control now, which means you can take your feet off the pedals. You've got lane control, which means you know once you're effectively on the motorway, you know it's controlling the lane, making sure you stay in the lane. It's controlling your speed to mm-hmm. keep up with the traffic. So, I think you you know, and most of those big brands now have that capability in a lot of their product so mm. I think you're seeing them evolve there over time you know they're now talking about on-ramp and then off-ramp so it's going to control it once you're on a motorway and that's a fairly safe environment where you know the, the vehicle's able to do that I think mm. the full autonomy with the new guys they're absolutely going there full noise as quickly as they can and rightfully so you know they want to try and disrupt yep. and that's the best way to disrupt I think if we end up in that incremental mode then the established incumbents are probably going to continue to dominate. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some this commentary from, I think it was probably uh, CES in, in Vegas, and 
the quote from Toyota Research Institute uh, was, yeah, was saying, you know, full autonomous driving is not even close. But one of the interesting things in in that particular story, and they're talking about what's called, you know, level five, completely autonomous, where you you know you don't have to lift a finger effectively. Mm. Um, but we've heard from the, I guess the the Tesla camp, the um, the disruption camp, I would call it, uh, how the autonomous vehicle is going to save lives. The commentary coming from the Toyota. Uh, end that was was really interesting is how comfortable are people going to even even if a vehicle's twice as safe as a human driver how comfortable are people going to be with thousands of lives you know when you look at it internationally Mm. many thousands of lives being lost uh with the technology being Mm. uh being you know taking the blame uh, for the for those deaths mm. and how forgiving are people going to be? It's um it's actually quite, it's a quite an interesting interesting thought. I mean if you if you you know delve into that that scenario and something happened to someone you knew or within your family, how are you going to feel about it? Um, how soon are we going to going to want to uh, going to want to move? I think if the if the cars are affordable. And or whether you're buying them or whether you're renting them, and most people, the statistics bear out that most people have safe, enjoyable, stress-free journeys and they don't need to drive the cars, that initially you'll see a spike of articles about deaths, but also we're seeing a spike in articles about how Tesla's auto, auto steer has been saving uh, the radar detecting a vehicle in front of the vehicle in front and, and putting the emergency braking on and that went completely viral people were like that's am- you know that is amazing it will save my life there is an equally num- there's an equal number of potential stories around how safety can be proved not just with statistics but with the you know it's easy to show a crash in the news and the news shows bad things but the te- the examples of safety measures and videos can be shown to have an immediate impact and i think we haven't even seen the, 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 the start of those and there'll be many more examples of how it will save lives just from the numbers uh, I think we need more miles you know we need one and a half two billion miles with all the vehicles that are being rolled out with this tech to start to be able to interpolate sensible numbers of safety but um, uh, I think over time the numbers and the convenience will lead to it being a non-issue how long that will take and whether it slows down adoption, I, I just I, that will depend on penetrate how quickly the, the vehicles penetrate the market. Because if you have a slow penetra- slow rollout, then people will read the news and see bad things, but they won't experience it. But the more people that buy and experience, the better tech. They'll let the more it'll become a convenience, and then they'll like we poo poo. We don't all uh, we get in a car in the morning and we drive the metal thing from one place to another, but it's a very dan- more dangerous than flying, and we still do it. Yeah, now you're uh, you're pretty committed to this sort of track, aren't you? In terms of uh, vehicles, you've you put in an, an order and you've got a vehicle that's arriving shortly that will uh, no doubt have some uh, some capabilities. Yes, I'm very excited and privileged to be waiting on a Model S from Tesla. I did have an order down for the Model Three, but I got but got a bit too excited, and uh, <laughs> so that that's coming later this month. Hopefully, if their their deliveries, uh, they're very keen to get things in in the end of quarters. So hopefully, I'll have that by the end of the month. So um, yeah, very pleased to have a fully electric, including ludicrous mode. Yes, excellent. Yes, which I'll be trialing out around the uh, suburb 
in Meadowbank. Very, gen- <laughs> very gently, if there's any Med- Meadowbank residents. Yeah. Yes, I guess there, I, there could be some dangerous aspects to uh, ludicrous mode. Um, and it is, in my experience, it's, you know, yeah, you've got your zero to 100 and, was it, just over two and a half seconds. Um, it's a little bit hard to limit yourself to that, that, that 100 um, but I'm sure you'll uh, you'll figure that out and find somewhere yes, safe. Well, I'll, exper- I'll experiment with it to find the sweet spot of acceleration, so it's not to annoy too many people. Is, one th- one thing about is it was quite interesting with the Tesla vehicles and autonomy is that they don't employ a lidar, which is the light based uh, radar. And there's been some concern, or there's been some technical engineers engineering attacks on that, or. Uh, cynicism as to whether the vehicle can support full level 5 autonomy with just cameras um, and normal radar and all the other um, uh, self-driving autonomy uh, hardware includes LiDAR. Elon Musk has said that it's not required and everything will be fine but they seem to be out on their own with with using their proprietary Tesla vision on the new hardware with just cameras and radar so that will be interesting because they're, so they're promising everything and most people say that it's best to have as many things as possible to interpolate between but of course that requires more software and more codes and maybe leaving the lidar out reduces the expense of the vehicle maybe it's slightly best because yeah, those vehicles from a hard- are pretty cheap right what's that those, those Teslas are pretty cheap right every little helps <laughs> <laughs> so as long as it works without the lidar that's the promise he has. He has actually said full auton- the, the hardware will support full autonomy. Yeah. So yeah. we can get our money back in 2018 if it doesn't doesn't happen. Really? Maybe. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Now, this this uh, dream of modular technology, modular smartphones, and so on, has been around for a while. Um, Fairphone have been getting, and it's F A I R. Um, have been get, getting a little bit of uh, a little bit of media uh, coverage recently. They're, I mean, very little company, but they are making uh, these modular and supposedly sustainable uh, phones for uh, for a little while. Um, and they were, sh- you know, showing off their their tech at uh, Mobile World uh, World Congress. Um, apparently, they've sold over uh, over a hundred thousand uh, smartphones. To date, but it's quite a quite a challenging uh, idea. That thing of building something that is really modular, you can um, uh, upgrade or replace components quite easily, especially for something like a smartphone, which is by its nature needs to be reasonably small, right? Because uh, you want to be able to fit it in your pocket, mm. um, and and that part of the equation when you're looking at a phone is how big is it, how much does it weigh, uh, etc. Um, you've done a little bit of looking into into this side of things too, um, Keith. What are your What are your thoughts on um, on the whole concept? And and then we've also had um, New Zealand company, the Module Project, that was mm. working. They were you know, starting off with a uh, uh, a Bluetooth uh, speaker, a mobile uh, speaker with you know batteries and so on that yeah. are all replaceable. Um, which to me seems like something that maybe is a little bit easier to do than a than a phone from a modular perspective. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I mean, as a sort of uh, certified geek and someone who has built um, custom PCs to get games working really well, or just because I like putting things together like Lego bricks, it kind of appeals. So there's a certain appealing logic to me that I'm not sure 
um, just you know from the technical point of view about being able to replace and put things together that that that's fun and it would be something that I would consider. I think for what we might call normal people um, uh, who aren't invested in the ability to change their things about, it's more around potentially the being able to get a quality device that um, has the ethical components of supporting, um, it for me, priorities like battery replacement, maybe the screen, GPU, those sorts of things. Ordinary people, maybe just the battery, that would be a real priority. I mean, the sustainable development aspects of it fall into sort of two camps. There's one, not chucking things away and being able to upgrade them. And the second one is the how, how recyclable the actual product is. Because if you had a fully biodegradable phone that you upgraded every year, that would kind of be okay. Because it would, you could throw it away like an Apple. Um, <laughs> and if someone like Apple or these manufacturers took their phones back and they were able to be disposed, but we know that they've got chemicals and things in them that, that make them less less green. So... Upgradability is great, but some concerns are when you look at uh, Google's Ara project. Uh, this, you know, Google had cancelled this project for reasons which seemed to, looking into it, seemed to be around getting fast communications between the components, getting the level of quality as good as a, uh, as good as a, a end-to-end supplied uh, a device, um, making sure it was fast and making sure the battery life was good. So not to excuse manufacturers not able not allowing you to replace the battery, but there is a level of um, performance and optimization in the miniaturization of the tech in a mobile device, which may make the comparison with a custom PC not work. Well-established interfaces in the PC, the size, can, it's not getting any smaller. Um, so that the 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 ability to modularize the PC is very different from a mobile. I, I would I would look into it and want to um, try it out, but I would want to be sure that the quality and and the the, the tech specs were as good as uh, as as the as the the Nexus or or the, the top end Samsung or as close to it. Um, so that would be my guarded guarded optimism about it. What do you think, Steve? Well, I think it's an interesting space, actually. I mean, I'd, you know, much more as a consumer rather than someone pulling them apart and trying to put them back together. Um, I mean, I've, I must update my handset every somewhere between 12 and 18 months, I think, you know, usually because I've dropped it or, or something's happened to it. So I think there is an absolute appeal in a physical form factor that could last five, ten years. You know, that's that's got to have some benefits because, boy, we're recycling our phones. If anyone's anything like me, we're recycling our phones pretty quickly and that's that can't be good on the environment um you know it would be interesting as you say to know whether you could get a form factor that is modular that's still of a similar size where you can swap out different things that start to perform differently and i think Mm. batteries is a very good example where you know battery cost is on moore's law at the moment in terms of reduction of price and performance um with lifted performance so you know that opportunity to swap out the battery and you know, I'm old enough to remember when you could buy mobiles when actually it was more modular. So, you know, those batteries certainly were plug in at that point in time. It was um, not long ago, was it? Are we that old? <laughs> it must still be. There must be, still be a few around, but they seem to be uh, be disappearing, uh, yeah. disappearing pretty quickly. Yeah. Okay, five or yeah. six years since yeah. I saw one, I think. Yeah. yeah. But I, th- I mean, I think it feels like they've reached the end of the kind of the, the size that they're prepared to go to. I've started to feel like the, the most modern phones, the pluses, are um, it's almost having a, a mini iPad stuck to the side of your head when you're, when you're having a phone conversation. So I think, you know, they can't go too much bigger on form factor now. And I think that modular approach will have those physical challenges, as, as you said. Yep. 
Yeah, there's a lot of demand for the phablet size, the larger phone size, so it makes it easier to approach a modular device as opposed to yeah, a smaller mm. one. Yeah, that's true. Although we seem to want bigger and bigger batteries so that we can get better battery life as well. And uh, there's you know some companies that try and maybe squeeze in a little bit too much and and, and get into problems there. So mm. um, important to balance these things out, right? <laughs> Uh, now, what else have we got going on? Um, Wellington's uh, Luxy campaign. Now, Steve, you're you're based in uh, in Wellington. I am. Um, so I'm I'm just curious what you're what you're aware of with this. We've here. This is the this is the campaign. We spoke about it. I think on the podcast a few months ago, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it's a campaign to yeah, be attracting uh, talent from the tech world uh, to Wellington and. What they're offering is to basically fly 100 people from around the world to Wellington, uh, a little bit of taste of New Zealand, taste of Wellington, uh, and set them up with, with job interviews. So, yeah, we we have that thing where the, the um, demand for technical people and you know, software developers and so on um, out outstrips the the supply of people locally i imagine uh, that's you know one of the things that, that you have to deal with with uh, uh with flick is uh, um the time that it takes to find the right people and so on um but we there was a, a, a um an update a few days ago saying that there are already been 11,000 people uh that had gone through and applied online so obviously they've got a bit of media coverage for this around the world and um, yeah, New Zealand's a reasonably sought after place for people to travel to. So, uh, offering f- free trips uh, is uh, is something that, that that's pretty easy to do. Um, well, it's pretty easy to find people interested in. And in fact, the the last thing I saw said there were maybe fifty five thousand people that were already part way through the application process. So. Um, What's your pick on this? Is this sort of good in terms of generating interest in, in, in talent coming to New Zealand? Yeah, I think it's an interesting approach. I mean, you know, first and foremost, uh, and it's probably no different from a number of cities around New Zealand, you know, we're, we're hungry for talent, and particularly in that digital space, you know, whether it's software developers and, and the likes. Um, I think it maybe is, is, is more so in Wellington. Um, I mean, we have a, a really strong emerging base of startups and mid-sized companies now we've kind of got the zeros of the world in the trade measure of the world at the the top end from a New Zealand perspective based in Wellington and they're pretty hungry for that talent as well um, so it's a pretty tight market I mean we you know we've got a, a reasonable size development team ourselves and it's always um, challenging I mean I think we're getting quite good at attracting the right talent as our brand becomes better known in the marketplace but it's certainly um, a challenge at the moment and then I think if you think about the approach that they've taken um, it's certainly a unique one. You got to you got to wonder how much of it's uh, viewed as a bit of a junket for someone overseas saying, "Hey, I'll come to New Zealand, have a bit of a trip and a bit of a lark around from mm. a few days, paid by someone else, and then then bunk back home." So, I think it's um, I guess it's a question of one, you know, is this a national problem and should it be solved on a on a national basis, and is it being solved on a national basis? Um, two, if it's done on a regional basis, you know, you want to know that it's um, it's delivering the right results. Um, so I think it has to be organised and structured pretty pretty well so it gets the right kind of outcomes. Um, but, you know, if they're going to get some talent in and it's going to work, and I, I ultimately the, I guess the proof's in the pudding really, isn't it, yeah. whether it um, whether it actually pulls in talent that's meaningful to companies in New Zealand doing good good things. Yeah, I mean, potentially seen as a 
pure marketing spend. You've got one. How many people? Was it one hundred? You've got one hundred people who will come on a holiday and and be introduced to these interviews and jobs and go back. Oh, they'll they'll talk about it. They'll provide word of mouth. So it's a pure marketing spend as opposed to like an official real recruitment campaign. It may well it may well do the job. Um, but we we only have the tyranny of distance now. We've got the infrastructure. We've got the the, the startups that are happening, um, and uh, all that's required is to raise that awareness of the brand. So yeah, I think I think overall it's a good idea, but perhaps uh, not the right approach for every city in New Zealand to adopt. I'm not sure. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds like the num- number of people that are uh, that have been applying suggests that there's you know from from a publicity perspective. Uh, you know, there's been some really good publicity mm. that, that's been generated, and I think uh, you know more of that being out there is is, is a good thing. Yeah, and um, yeah, if we can make New Zealand an attractive place for for people to come, then it's quite quite handy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting trying to uh, screen the thousands of applications they've had. Now, I'm not quite sure what the uh, process is for deciding who comes and who doesn't. First y- in, first out. Yeah, no, the number must- of number of Twitter followers, Facebook <laughs> followers, <laughs> be what I would do. <laughs> What are you what are you alluding to there? What have you been across recently where uh, you thought Twitter followers might have uh, uh, impacted who got picked oh, for something? Just I don't know the way that who got the deliveries of their car at the launch night of the <laughs> Tesla thing, even though they ordered later. I'm not naming any names there, but racist. They had more Twitter followers than me, so I oh. thought Tesla were up to something. But now I'm learning from it. Yeah, it's yeah. a good approach. Yep. So if people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, K Patton. Thank you. Maybe my, maybe I'll arrive more quickly. Um, I think you're pretty close to delivery of that car now, so um, I'm not sure we can do too much to to, to help. Um, the, I guess the the other side of that coin is that we have a lot of people that come into New Zealand to study where English isn't necessarily their first language, and what I notice out there is there's there's a bit of a challenge in bringing. Uh, some of those people into the workforce where they've they've studied, uh, you know, they've they've got uh, you know t- uh, training or degrees behind them, um, but it's how do we get them into into the workforce? And I don't I don't know what all of the what all of the 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 hold up points are, but usually. Um, as as employers, we're tending to to look for people that can hit the ground running as quick as possible. Uh, we want them to have worked within the local environment, so you know culturally, um, they're going to you know click in and and so on. I guess there's a num- number of factors. Either have you got any thoughts on what we could do better there, um, or do you think we're getting the best out of out of most people that are coming into New Zealand to study from you know, India and and uh, Asia and around the world, um, and we're taking full advantage, or do you think we could do better? Um, difficult question, really. Just talking from experience, really. I mean, so, some of the limitations aren't necess- are, are 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 um, in in our world of software design and development. We've had uh, uh, you know people from all over the world and locally that have come through the New Zealand education system. And often the, the, the barriers are around, you know, that we call it client-facing or not, you know. So where you're looking to progress as a developer or a designer uh, where, where it's um, you can be doing great work internally and often people have great written English and can understand things really well. But when it comes to being in a client presentation situation 
or even talking about uh, aspirations and, and career development. There can be cultural differences there that aren't to do with the education, they're just to do with wh- wh- where people, their, their family environment and their upbringing in another country. Um, so this is just where uh, that can that can slow down the advancement of people within your company, um, uh, and we just need to work harder to provide. Uh, w- one of the things that we looked at, uh, what was it, the um, Toastmasters? And this was just a general way that we did it, even in a small business that I uh, put in thinking, yeah, this will be pretty good. And it turned out to be really, really good for people who had English as a second language because they, they very much uh, flowered being able to talk about something that wasn't their work and having other people in the company listen to them talk about uh, personal side to their how they'd got to the country and where, why they were there. And this created friendships and created links between people outside of the can you please do this task type work. Oh, that's good. So, toast, so Toastmasters is the public speaking It's a public speaking group, thing, but it? when we did it, it turned into a form of almost group therapy when we did it. You know, people <laughs> opened up and talked about uh, death struggles and things in their lives that really brought some of the people close together and we saw different sides of each other but the second language thing it cracked through that because you weren't interfacing with someone and, and maybe struggling with them can you please talk to the client or out of a professional environment you understood a bit about each other and it's about us understanding other people's cultures as well so if you're if you're trying to deliver stuff and you see someone else's culture and you're trying to fit that into what you need in a professional services thing, it can be frustrating. But then when you can see things from another person's perspective, then you learn how to act differently and get the best out of them. So things like they sell, you know, and that, I don't, that, that's something professionally that I think companies need to do to try and break through the language, the language and culture divides to bring people together in a different way. Mm, certainly. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, right. yeah, very similar experience, I think, for us as well. We've helped a number of people um, join Flick um, that have come from overseas um, and you know that starts all the way from immigration um, and supporting that that process and I think it's you know if, if particularly if you're a fast growing business it can be quite challenging actually because you do want people that are hitting the ground um, running pr- pretty pretty quickly and I think particularly in that that tech space um, and you know the modern approach of, of agile um, you know, communication skills are all important. In fact, you know, yeah, they're almost more important than whether you can code in the in the first place um, these days. And so, I think it is a, a really interesting um, challenge. And it's both. I think it is both uh, language and its culture um, as well. And that in that environment, that's quite dynamic. Um, you know, and our, our CTO is always saying that. You know, our, our teams have to be really, really dynamic. You know, we, we, you know, we're absolutely against waterfalls. We don't have BAs sitting in the middle trying to interpret it, interpret things. So it's it means that you need um, tech capability that's able to understand, communicate, ask questions, get a real sense, um, offer up different approaches. You know, and that's mm. quite a different skill set from simply sitting in front of a keyboard smashing away. So yeah, yeah it's an interesting one. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, I just thought I'd, I thought we should delve into that because I think it's somewhere that an area that we we probably don't uh, talk about as much. But as a you know, as a country, we have a lot of people that are coming in and studying here, and if we can if we can utilise uh, that, then obviously. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of one of the first places that we that we should be looking before we sort of start looking around uh, <laughs> elsewhere as well. Um, TiVo finally going to shut down in New Zealand and Australia on the 31st of October uh, 2017. So um, 
there may be I'm well I know there are some amongst our, our listeners that have got uh, that use a use a, a, a TiVo and when the TiVo um, product launched here in New Zealand it, it really was one of the and it's I think it was 2009 that it uh, launched in New Zealand um, but it was the one of the um, one of the best ways of being able to uh, yeah, capture what's being broadcast on free-to-air TV and and play it back later. Now, not an absolutely uh, perfect offering, and I know they, they had some issues with some of the set-top boxes that they sold in New Zealand, um, but still today they've got their their fans. Um, we've got one at home, and in terms of the, the competitive products for... Uh, I guess yeah, re- recording the uh, broadcast TV content, uh, playing it back, being able to skip past ads and so on. There was something about the ease of use of it that, that caught on, and of course, TiVo was really the company uh, globally that uh, that really established this uh, the the space of being able to record content down to a uh, a local hard drive. Mm. Um, but one of the key elements is for TiVo to work, they have to have an arrangement. Uh, to be able to draw in the electronic program guide and that's something that they've had across Australia and New Zealand. Uh, when they f- first launched it was through a partnership with uh, TVNZ uh, but it looks like that um, for TiVo down under 31st of October this year is uh, is the end of the line uh, both in Australia uh, and, and New Zealand. Um, do you guys think this is is very important? Do you still watch uh, any TV in a you know broad a traditional sort of broadcast sense? Do you have a MySky box, which is I guess is pretty much the the equivalent type of offering from a uh, pay TV world? Uh, I I don't anymore. I, mean, I just couldn't justify the uh, the the eighty bucks a month for the occasional All Blacks game and sport. So I use the last pass now when I want. I do pay the Sky money to watch the, the HD sport content as and when I need it. But um, we don't we don't have TV. The kids love it when they go to, their, to, to the in-laws and they're glued to adverts and Cartoon <laughs> Network and they think it's amazing. But oh, we, really? I don't, yeah, they ju- it's, like a, it's like a holiday to go and watch adverts. They're like, we never get adverts, Dad. <laughs> and uh, so it's a novelty and they get really quite excited about it. But yeah, we just, you know, it's Netflix and, and streaming and, you know, the stuff that, that we want to watch on demand. Um, so I think TiVo came here quite late as well. I mean, I guess most people had the Foxtel boxes. Uh, in America, it was early and they were the trailblazers. But by the time it hit here, most people, it was good enough to have the uh, the mice guys and the like. Um, and, um, you know, it's the, all that's still there. All the broadca- broadcast stuff is still there. But gradually people are moving to the IPTV um, mm-hmm. approach, stuff over the Internet. Um, so it's not a surprise, but it does sound like it's a better, technically better than the mice guy, from what you're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms, in terms in terms of an offering, it um, it worked pretty well. But I've sort of wondered how you know how they've kept operating because they haven't been selling any boxes yeah. in this country for years and years, and yet they've had this service that's ticking over. So. It's costing somebody somewhere to uh, to actually keep it uh, keep it running. The other boxes uh, that you can buy in the market from a you know a range of vendors today, um, 
you know, some some of them are, are, are reasonably good, but they're they're drawing the uh, electronic program guide through what is what is just broadcast in the stream. Mm. Uh, but TiVo had a little bit more data and was was maybe a little bit slicker, yeah. um, but not dramatically different. I think. Mm. What do you use, Steve? Uh, so I'm a mix as well, but I'm still we got Sky um, and for the sport, and I've just been too lazy to to move away and just grab it dy- dynamically yeah. um, so it's been more of a convenience thing for me than, more than anything else but uh, you know you can see the, the trend is clearly away from a box with a hard drive that allows you to record for watching conveniently in the future to just pulling it down when you when you need it so I guess it's probably no surprise with TiVo getting here pretty pretty late um, mm. it's um, yeah the market's really moving away from that fairly quickly now and I think it's you know it's just lazy people like me that just take a little bit longer so eventually, I think they're relying on you. <laughs> they are at the moment. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Yeah, I was one of them as well. You know, it takes yeah. a while to sort of sort it all out and do it and give the the thing back. Yeah, it's, it is cumbersome. Yeah. There's also, um, I don't know if you've seen, you know, the YouTube, YouTube TV as well. You know, signing up some of the broadcasters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's people do want live broadcast news and sport and. Um, I think, I mean, that's just America at the moment, but they've managed to get some really good content deals together. And I think if that can go international. And you've got a big company like Alphabet, Google behind broadcast television, you know, others that the big thing is the rights, you know, yep. those sport rights and those rights to, to broadcast. If it can be delivered over another app on the Roku or the or, or the Xbox or whatever, then uh, it'll become super convenient. And that's, I think, where the threat's going to come as a, a large player going global um, along like Netflix, Spotify. And so YouTube TV was very interesting. I think that was a couple of weeks ago that they, mm. they announced that, but might be a while before we get our... Uh, New Zealand stuff through that, but I like the idea of having to. having good content, no ads, is is you know quite key. And one of the frustrations, if you want to pick up some of that free to air content, uh, TVNZ Media Works, and you use their app for it, is mm. you've got those those ads being uh, yep. you know shoved shoved down your throat. Yes, and uh, I mean everybody should have a premium. Um, option, I think, and you know, Hulu with the with Hulu Plus, uh, which is not officially uh, targeting the New Zealand market, although you know it's possible to get it here. Um, yeah, for a long time you were you were forced to yeah you, know, you pay your subscription, but you had ads as well. And you know, as soon as they had an option there, you could pay a little bit more and turn the ads off. Um, you know, I was into that. I think that's it's definitely something. I think that traditional broadcasters. Um, yeah, should should work into their uh, their offerings. I would have thought. It would seem to me the level of consumer frustration versus the revenue. You know, most of the revenue is from subscription. There is ad revenue there, but for to give the consumer the option would create a brand loyalty that's not required at the moment because of the monopoly. But when times come when there is shifts in the consumer choices, that if you're going to create that premium offering so that people will stick with your brand because they've enjoyed it. As opposed to, I can't wait to get rid of the ads at some point. So it should be, I totally agree, it should be an upsell option. And um, that would have been something that maybe, that was one of the, this is one of the considerations where you just, why am I getting ads, you know? Yeah. Um, now, just a, a, a quick um, chat about a product I've had to hands on with over the last few de- days. Um, Oppo are a um, Chinese based uh, Android uh, phone manufacturer. And they've been gearing up for their New Zealand launch, which I think is, is happening over the next uh, few days. I'll be out of the country uh, when it happens. Um, but they've got their 
R9s, which is a, a, a pretty slick phone. It's not quite, um, you know, quite up there with the top phones from the likes of Samsung and and so on. But uh, where they seem to be coming into the market, and we'll, we'll we'll find out the full details once they launch, is that they they are delivering pretty capable phones in terms of features, um, but you know potentially half the price of something like a, uh, a Samsung. Uh, Galaxy S seven, so uh, you know, coming in pretty pretty capable um, in terms of the performance. Not right at the top end, uh, nice cameras and so on, but uh, lower price point. So it does seem as though we're we're starting to see a, a broader mix of options within the New Zealand market, um, which makes makes things, I guess, a, a little bit easier for everyone when you've got a few more a few more uh, choices. Um, so we'll get we'll give a few more details of that probably on the the next episode or or so once I've spent a little bit more time um, having a look at that and uh, once they've actually launched in New Zealand, which as I say is over the over the next few few days. Um, other other things we've got to uh, to chat about. Um, a bit of research coming through on uh, market share around. Um, Two-in-one devices or tablets that can be uh, can be used with uh, with a keyboard, so that they're uh, they're they're a bit more relevant, I guess, for uh, content creation and and working on. Um, so stats have have come through from uh, IDC. They're they're referring to them as detachables. Um, and Apple, who when they when they did their last analysis, and this is uh, they're looking at 2016 uh, shipments. So when they looked at their then last analysis uh, the year prior, um, Apple had a very slim market share because they'd just launched the iPad Pro at that stage. Um, but it looks like uh, Apple has come out on top uh, with slightly higher share that, than of the market than uh, Microsoft with their uh, Surface Pro product. So. Um, shows just just how strong uh, Apple continue to be in the in the tablet space that they've been able to you know slide in there and over you know just over a year basically mo- knock Microsoft off off their perch. Who pretty much invented that uh, that category of the the tablet with the detachable uh, keyboard. Well, I'm a little, well as a Microsoft regional director. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean I think that, that also it, the overall share is sixty. Sorry, sixty-eight percent for Windows-based detachables. So some of the success of what what Microsoft were trying to do with the Surface was encourage the ecosystem to develop because Windows, unlike Apple, can run on multiple devices. So those are the success of the Spectre and the Lenovo and all those other devices have made the um, uh, the the Windows-based detachables market more successful as opposed to Microsoft becoming less successful because I think they would see their own success as a as a percentage of that overall Windows market, I'm not sure about the, you know, the iPad with the keyboard because it sounds like the classification of the detachable may have led to an increase in in Apple the Apple share in the last year as opposed to the, the last one because you could always put keyboards on an on an iPad, but you, you, whether or not this is increasing in frequency or whether it's just a rep- I think delay. I think it's def- it's definitely uh, definitely helped Apple. Yeah, um, but they are they are somewhat different. Product, Steve. Do you what do you use? Are you a, t- a tablet user at all, or laptop? Uh, I've got an or? iPad, so that's the yeah. convenience yeah. device for home when I'm not having to do anything major. But I move pretty quickly back to a laptop, to be honest. 
Um, it's just, I mean, I've got both, so it's easy. You can, mm. you know, switch between them. Um, I just find that much, much easier. You know, if I'm surfing at home, then, you know, an iPad's a really nice device for yeah. just kind of walking around and doing simple stuff. Do you, do you use a keyboard with your iPad or yeah, would you switch I, the... Okay. I, I do to a point. Mm. Um, so, you know, if I'm filling in a small form or something or, you know, a quick email or something, as mm-hmm. soon as I start to get to... You know, and I don't have a detached keyboard for that connected to it. So as soon as I start getting to something that's a bit more heavy duty, I just find naturally I just you know drop one and pick up yeah. the other, and away I go. That's um, good. Yeah, so it's a, it's much more dependent on what I'm doing, and you know that behaviour drives what I what I what I grab. And I, you know, and I haven't found anything that sits in the middle there. I go great, I'm comfortable. I've got one device um, that works across that spectrum. Yeah, may well be out there. I just you know I haven't. I think it's an era that that's that's still developing. I mean, I still like the laptop form factor, um, but the you know the idea of a you know a tablet with a detachable keyboard is works pretty well. Although realistically, I don't really know a whole lot of people that ever detach the keyboard if they've got a you know a Surface or iPad Pro and so on. If you've got that keyboard, it, it yeah. mostly tends to uh, stay attached. It's, I think it's more that it just helps with making it a small light form yeah. factor but, uh, uh, more than anything else. I've, if you, I mean, I have a docking station at home, so the Surface works. I never, I very rarely use it as a tablet, but I, I take it from home to work and use it in meetings and put it in the thing. A large phone goes a long way to, to replacing or augmenting the need for a tablet. Uh, like sitting and browsing, uh, one of the larger phablet devices, you can do. A, 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 that's a that. That's a large phone plus a plus a laptop. Uh, convenient. Yeah, works mm. very well. Yeah, so actually, I'm, I'm moving between three devices, really, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> including, <laughs> supposed to make your life simpler, right? <laughs> yeah. Now we had a. Um, one of the things that got mentioned in a recent episode, and this might have been Michelle Dickinson actually talking about uh, 3D printing houses, and there was a comment that came uh, back through maybe over, over Twitter uh, around that, and um, I guess this sort of comment was, well, you know, how, how could that be possible, and, you know, plastic houses and things like that. Um, but for those that are sort of interested and, and curious in this, there has been some interesting uh, media coverage in the last few days. And in fact, uh, Stuff picked up a, a story uh, of a of a, um, uh, a San Francisco based company uh, that built a thirty eight square meter three um, D printed home at their testing facility, I think in uh, in Russia, and they were talking about it having a you know, production cost of around 15,000 New Zealand dollars. And th- there's quite a bit online, if you go and have a look, of, of 3D printing where you've basically got a, um, you know, a machine that's squirting out, uh, you know, concrete sort of droplets or, or a, mm. you know, a line of, uh, of concrete. And I think, and, and, you know, composites and varying materials. But I think this is actually a pretty interesting space, right? The idea that... Uh, um, the technology can really come into play and uh, um, you know produce homes, and I think certainly in New Zealand where we've had uh, challenges with making owning a home, uh, you know, from an affordability perspective, if technology can come in and actually help with that, um, and then we we add in some other bits and pieces, autonomous vehicles, and you know, ultra fast broadband to to locations that are outside uh, the big cities. 
um, you know, maybe maybe this is really going to come in and, and, and help make it more attainable for people to have homes in the future. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting space. I know anyone that's either built a home or renovated a home knows it's a heck of a job um, and it's complex, you know, and it's very, very hard to do and it doesn't seem particularly cost efficient at the moment as a as an exercise. So, you know, I think there's, there's those components of modular um, approach to building houses which will create great economies I think as as a likely first stage where actually you know if you can design a home and it can be built off modular then that's going to take away a lot of the inefficiencies and costs but I really like that idea interestingly <laughs> you know 3D printing a, a home I'm not quite sure what kind of size form factor you can get these things to before it all starts to fall over but it's um and you know, and to me, that actually creates real scope scope for creativity off the back of it as well. So I think you know it would open up, you know, what the possibilities of what architects could dream and, and design, or it could actually move it directly to the end consumer designing their own home. You know, as long as it's going to meet engineering standards, I think it you know it, it one it really opens up the possibilities from a creativity architecture point of view, and two it could really drive down the, the costs of of building new homes, which is you know it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking was the, the creative aspect, you know, being able to do form factors that you would be too expensive to do for someone who was doing their own their own build on something so they could be more creative with the designs, with their architects. So there's that, which is possibly more in premium where people are designing their own things. But what's interesting to see if they could, you know, if they're, uh, we're building houses, you know, social housing in Auckland, whether we can do something in a strip across multiple sections where it can kind of move down and build the, the foundations and, and build the, the structures to be able to do that more efficiently. Um, I don't know enough about the, I've done some renovations, but I don't know enough about the overall building process to, uh, to, to see how, uh, whether that can drive down costs or where the humans still need to come in to do things around that. Um, but certainly it sounds really uh, looking at some of the machines that are being involved and, and some of the shapes that it was able to create with the concrete it would seem to um, be something that could be uh, you know that the builders on a project could, could bring in to do either all of the house or parts of the house maybe you're, you're putting something on the side and it can get in and do something that it would be really hard to do for, for, for human hands so it looks really exciting. I, I, I can't imagine that. I can imagine that it will come in in some form. Yeah, um, and you you add in that element of uh, open sourcing that we have now, where uh, you basically will be, potentially be able to get a you know a whole lot of blueprints and so on that are just you know freely uh, shared. Uh, you know, I think we'll see more of that sort of thing happening. Uh, and then you know you add in elements, and I saw um, it was some while ago, but someone that was building a wall out of sort of recycled bits bits and pieces it was kind of like oh this is looking kind of you know this kind of crazy wall but when they'd finished it i think they covered it in cement so it wasn't sort of it wasn't visible all the elements that they'd uh that they'd built it out of yeah um and you know we're now starting to see more and more where certain you know waste products will get uh re reused you know whatever it may be uh, sliced and diced up and that you know maybe could be used as, as part of these types of projects as well to mm. um, you know better better utilize some of those things that otherwise might end up uh, in in landfill obviously there's you know there's some caution required around that you don't want fumes coming from things that are in your in your walls but if this stuff's done right um, I think there's yeah. probably some pretty interesting outcomes yeah I mean yeah. that'll probably be one of the interesting things I think is the standards and consents that you typically need these days and how they would need to adjust for 
much wider scope of design and, and yeah. creativity, you know, and how they how they'd handle that successfully. Make sure you know you obviously build safe homes. Yeah. Number one, you know, um, but you know that they're they're to a certain standard and, and and the like. So it's I mean it's an interesting rub I think because yep. you know consent is already an interesting rub I think with architects looking to do interesting things. Yet and they know the industry, let alone putting that in the hands of the end consumer, saying there you go, build yourself a <laughs> design, build your build your own home if you like. Yep. So it'll, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. Disruption, interesting interesting times ahead. Now speaking of that. Um, there's there's been a, a bit of change afoot in in other areas, and the uh, the electricity market is one of them. Um, Steve, wondering if you can give us a little bit of an update. What's happening in the world of uh, Flick Electric? Um, I've spoken to you on the New Zealand Business Podcast, so those that want the sort of the full in depth, um, then it's probably worth having a listen to to that episode. Um, and I've tried out your services for uh, well, for more than more than six months. Um, so thank you for facilitating that. It's always always nice to try out uh, you know different things that are happening in the tech in the in the crossover between technology and other um, sectors. And I was quite impressed with the way that your app operated and and I guess just the the change that uh, involving technology the mix of smart meters and and apps and you know data uh, was able to sort of change the way that I purchase power but maybe you can give us a little bit of a run through on what your what your take is and where the business is heading yeah so look it's a really interesting industry I think and it is going to change an awful lot because the reality is since electricity is invented it's not changed barely at all so it stayed the same for many many decades and it is um, both that consumer pull but also technology push that's that's really driving it now so it is an exciting space I, I read the other day Bill Gates has been reflecting on his life and writing his memoirs and he he was talking about you know why he stepped back from his college education at the age of 18 and you know the recognizing at that point in time the opportunity that he saw for a for an industry or you know, a new industry and he's reflecting if he was in that same situation you know, today at the age of eighteen, what would it take for him if he's just starting university to go bugger? I'm, I'm throwing that in and giving it a go again. And I think you know, artificial intelligence was one of three things he picked. Another one was was energy, um, because it is going to change fundamentally, which is which is pretty exciting. So that, so that's neat. Um, for, for us, we're we're trying to do two things. I guess what we're um, initially doing is we're trying to give um, customers much more choice and control under the existing way of buying energy which is effectively a model where someone generates it someone moves it around and someone gets it to your door and so what we've what we've done is developed a new business model and used tech to deliver a much smarter service to customers and that firstly gives them transparency so you know we've all faced um, price increases and energy affordability is a, a, a real challenge um, in New Zealand, it's no different than a lot of markets overseas. So what we've done is we've allowed customers to know that they get the exact cost of generation, so they pay the wholesale price of electricity. We pass on the costs of moving it to their door, which is typically the distributor's um, charges for moving it across their lines. They pay for their meters separately, and then we charge them separately as the retailer for that digital function of, of servicing them and supporting them. So that's the first bit. So it's, it's really transparent. It's really fair. If someone puts their prices up, you can see who does that. Because interestingly, in New Zealand, a lot of costs have actually been falling, but those haven't flown through to the customer. So this might, creates a very transparent, fair, honest model first and foremost. Yep. The second thing it does then is it actually gives you choice. So, um, you know, 
um, gener- generations run by engineers, the same with networks and their um, capacities that have that are typically built to a, a natural peak load, yet they send a price signal through that tries to encourage people to think about the price of energy. So what we give customers is choice, ultimately, in how much they pay. So in certain times of the day, you can pay very, very little for energy, and at other times of the day, it's actually quite a lot more expensive. And, and so it's no different from buying you know fruit and vegetables at the supermarket certain times a year avocados fairly expensive that's because probably it's been flown in from overseas air, air freighted in and energy is exactly the same so certain times of day uh, and certain times of year it's it's a little bit more expensive and so it's just exposing customers to that purchase pattern of scarcity or abundance of the product which is electricity which we know is a good thing and they respond accordingly so demand response and which is what our customers do which is fantastic. And then we layer over the top of that, finally, just a very smart digital um, server. So we give them complete control of all of the information. So rather than, for example, receiving a bill once a month, we tell them every day what their bill tally is, which is fantastic. You know, So you're really, for people that are struggling to pay the bill at the end of the month and they don't want their bill shocked, they can set building up over over the period, which is, which is fantastic. So I guess what we're doing is, in, under the existing model of buying energy, we're enabling, you know, real transparency, great choice around prices and real control. Um, we've got lots of other features, so we show customers what the carbon um, impact is of production of energy, for example. So we're really just layering a lot more information over time that allows people much more choice, a lot more di- a lot more, di- more dimensions of the types of choices and things they should be considering. Yeah, it is quite nice to sort of see those indicators when you can see that Oh look, you know, there's obviously not a heavy demand on electricity at the moment. There's plenty of spare capacity. You can you can buy it at a at a really low rate. Um, I guess it's going to vary, you know, from home to home in terms of how much, you know, if at all, you can take advantage of of that. Um, but I I just enjoyed having that visibility. Um, also, the reporting that comes through and tells you, look, you know, uh, by being with Flick Electric, you've saved, you know, whatever it is, seventeen percent this month compared to being with the the most popular retailer in your area and so on. So those numbers seem to be pretty strong. Um, in terms of the you know the, the the discount structure because you're not paying a I guess a, a higher average price you're going with those those ups and downs um, I guess what the other companies are sort of doing to entice people is you know big re- sign up with us and we'll give you you know two hundred dollar you know rebate or something like that um, so it's it's you know it's still a competitive space but it does, does look like that uh, you know from from my experience with it and you know I wasn't able to do an exact um, you know, clear comparison to uh, to other providers, but certainly looking at those stats you're providing and so on made it made it look pretty good. And it did certainly in terms of the the bills that we're getting, um, they look they look pretty good. Yeah, look, it's it's delivering really well, and 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 creating that transparency. What we make sure is customers are aware of of where they stand. So what we do is we rate them under our model, and of course that's with a price that varies quite a lot. I mean, this the spot market which our customers get access to. That price changes every half hour and that reflects the supply and demand for, for energy in the, in the marketplace. So it's quite dynamic. And, then and we it pass. could be higher, right, at times. Absolutely. So and sometimes you're going to pay a higher it, rate. It is. And so, you know, we provide really good tools. So we've got alerts on our app, for example, where, um, where there's a threshold set. And so they can tick that that notification and that'll pop through and say, hey, listen, the price is a little bit higher. A lot of our customers then have a look at the price and ultimately it just provides that choice. Do I want to respond to this? You know, for this price, do I am I worried about it? And do I want to perhaps wander around and turn a few lights off or actually am I quite comfortable with this price? So ultimately it's really about choice. 
and actually having that choice. And lots of our customers actually end up getting quite relaxed about the prices and, and are still winning long run. Others are doing some simple behavioural stuff around the house, so that's often not looking at the at the prices um, on a regular basis, but just seeing the patterns by time of day. So it tends to be a lot cheaper overnight. So from kind of eleven at night till six in the morning, you can mm. move anything in your house. So most people have a dishwasher now with a little timer on it, for example. So people, some people are doing that. Maybe doing more washing on the weekends if that fits with the the, the family routine and winning off that basis. Yep. Others are gaming it. So we've got some that absolutely love the fact that they're monitoring. We're telling them how they're doing every week against their previous provider and savings. And then some people are using tech. So you know they're investing in tech in the home to control devices specifically against those price signals that that we give them. So yeah, so cool. that so that's pretty cool. And, and that's kind of one side of of the business is um, giving customers much more choice in the current way you buy in. Energy and a different model and then the second side is really helping what's emerged as prosumers so that's people that decide they're actually going to produce some energy and consume energy and so they're investing in solar in the home and, and battery and the interesting thing there once you've done that is that really price signals are even more important because you'll still buy some energy in so that ability to buy it in when it is cheap maybe store it in your battery um, you may generate some electricity in your home as well but interestingly when you've got spare energy you can sell it back and you can sell it back at a better price so pick the moment particularly once you've got battery where you can actually send it back and, and make, at one you're getting a market price which is all important rather than a price that you're told you're going to be receiving by your, your perhaps your current utility Yes. Um, and secondly, you know, which is all important, that aspect of look, it's a fair price because it's a market that thousands of people are trading on. And then secondly, you know, there's that opportunity to arbitrage, um, which is which is kind of neat. Mm. So we're just starting to pilot some of those um, services for people that are investing in, in solar and battery. And we, you know, we think that's a really nice model where you can be very smart. Um, as a consumer, um, but then you can also be very smart once you become a prosumer yeah. in the market. Yeah. Now the only um, I, now I'm, I'm testing out another uh, power company's tech at, tech at the moment, so I'm not using your app. But um, one of the things I did notice is that the the data can take can take a few days to sort of flow through. Is that to do with the way the wholesale? You know where 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 are those sort of delays, and that you can't see your your usage instantly. Yeah, it's a what's little. The, what's the challenge with that? Yeah, it's a How little frustrating. That, so we so that we've got two dynamics there. One one is the prices, and the prices are real time, which is fantastic. So mm. our customers, we basically got a needle. It's almost like a rev counter from a you know low price to a to a higher price, um, and that's very dynamic. That is moving um, real time, um, and that's that's great, and that's the all important thing. What our customers don't um, see is their consumption matched against that. So we receive that data typically anywhere between 24 and 48 hours after. And that's the fact that you know you need a smart meter to do this. Right. Um, that smart meter usually gets communicated to once uh, per day. So it hauls back that data. That data then gets processed probably over the next 24-hour period to clean it, scrub it, if there's right. any issues with it, and then it gets handed to us by the by the meter provider. So, right. so that's something that could change in the future with different smart meters and so on, but it's probably not likely to change any time soon in that case if that's sort of a data There are data possibilities upload. there because yeah. that's actually about the, the comms um, tech that's sitting in the, mm. in, the, um, in the smart meter. Quite a lot of New Zealand is done using GPRS. And, you know, there is that opportunity for for consumers maybe to say look I'd actually value knowing what given you've just sent me a price signal I'd really value understanding how much energy I'm using in my home right now and what the next period is going to cost me so you know we're really interested working to see whether we can stand up a service like that that makes it much more dynamic and real Mm. because at that point you can actually rate the amount they'll pay 
in that next period yeah. as opposed to what a price is for that period, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and there's probably some interesting challenges there to do with the GPRS and, and, and 2G networks getting killed off yeah. and, and, and so on as well, but uh, yeah, that's I'm, probably a discussion for another well, day. Well, I'm just hoping the metering guys got themselves a good long-term contract with the, <laughs> with the telcos. But, I mean, this would be awesome if you knew the consumption of individual plugs and fuse, the parts of your fuse box and your devices so that, you, you know, if you were an electricity provider and you could integrate this as a prosumer into your house, through through the things that you're using, the app could then integrate your house's profile with your devices and your appliances. So you can really tell it's the aircon that was left on or the fridge that was was quietly inefficient and yeah. that sort of personalised feedback beyond you know the the number that you're using, which yeah. is great. But that would tend to make you stick with a provider that could help fitting your house out with stuff that could provide more granularity in the device usage and yeah. without too much effort. Yeah, so that's coming as well. There's, there's some quite good um, products out there now that are starting to learn the patterns. So they can't actually, they're not monitoring an individual device. So mm. there's not a meter sitting at your light bulb or your refrigerator. But what they're doing is they sit there and they look at the total draw and they start right. to learn those things that typically have that type of draw. So if you think about your refrigerator, it has a very typical pattern of it may go on for 10 15 minutes turn itself off for 30 to 40 minutes gone for 10 to 15 minutes yeah. and so those smart software systems are actually starting to identify the different components in your house so it can pick out what a garage door looks like it can pick out what your fridge looks like so on and so forth but it's very know. it's very clear what a what a an oven is it's usually very clear what your hot water is which is a very very big um, drawer of load yep. in, a, in a typical home and so it starts to identify those and then it can actually tag the proportion of consumption and start to break those up yep. and deliver those up to you which is which is pretty cool and um, of course we've got internet of things coming coming at us so I think it's still trying to figure out what the applications are there rather than it just being the cool closing curtains which yeah. uh, kind of loses its utility value fairly quickly but definitely for devices where if there's a quite a strong price signal there's a real benefit of automating to that device um, that gives a you know puts money in, the, in consumers pockets again yeah. which is pretty neat so there's a lot of convergence in the space of the internet of things home automation um, platforms like ours that are very digital and sending those price signals, obviously battery and solar and the ability for customers to start to decide whether they want to gener- generate some of their own sustainable energy, which is, um, you know, and as I said, it's 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 an industry that is facing significant disruption and, you know, it's got Bill Gates excited, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, Keith. What's happening in the world of Marker Metro? Fill, it, fill us in before we. Uh, oh yeah, we um, ra- well, I was saying up. at the start, we've um, um, of the last few years. You know, we started the company after um, making making a game and selling it to Microsoft Studios, and went into a, a few years of which we still do a lot of lot of work for hire work, as you call it, services work for other people doing uh, game and application development and design. And uh, over the last few months, um, we've put some investment into our, our own capabilities and came up with a, a, a puzzle game that we've taken over to the Game Developers Conference. Um, so we're still, still doing what we do in application and game development for other people, but we're kind of moving back into the creative space, which is pretty exciting. So we were over with uh, some of the other uh, uh, game devs for a Kiwi contingent over to San Francisco last week and uh, uh, had a booth and showed the game off. And yeah, it was, that, that was pretty exciting. So that's, that's, that's the highlight of what we're up to at the moment. Uh, that should be out hopefully within the next three or four months. Oh, it's all good. going to plan. So get that out um, and uh, hope people like it. Cool, cool. 
All right. Well, I think that's us for uh, for this episode. So um, thanks, guys, for joining the show. Now, where do we where do we track you both down online, Keith? You're uh, you're still pretty active on Twitter these days. Yeah, I usually, I usually whinge quite a lot on Twitter. Uh, no, I'm only joking. I'm very nice. Um, a K Patton, K P A T T O N. Usually techy, businessy things. And uh, Steve. And for me, I mean, I'm not. I'm less active actually. I just find my days are so blue and cluttered and jammed up as, as they are. I struggle to get on there. But you can find me on uh, Chief um, Flickster uh, for Twitter. Excellent, excellent. Oh, that's good. People can track me down at Paul Spain on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, a couple of little uh, little things. New Zealand Business Podcast. You can hear uh, uh, more in-depth sort of interview with uh, with Steve there. Um, and our newest episode uh, has just, just come out uh, this week. And we're moving into a regular cycle with the New Zealand Business Podcast now with weekly episodes. Uh, this week... Um, we had Sir Michael Hill, so yeah, pretty interesting uh, story from uh, Sir Michael of uh, of his his journey uh, in business. Some pretty fascinating, uh, some pretty fascinating uh, insights there into uh, into into his success. Uh, the bit that surprised me um, was that um, he was he was working for his uncle for I think over over twenty years before he actually took the. Um, um, took the leap into into launching his own business, and but of course his his own business done very very well uh, around New Zealand and Australia and uh, and North America. So it's some some good good tales there. But but also there's interviews with uh, with others in the in the technology world, not just uh, Steve. So some good uh, some good content there as well. Um, well, that yep, that's us for uh, for this week. Uh, if you want to keep up to date with the, the goings on uh, the world of tech and business, then uh, you can sign up for my updates at paulspain.com. All right, thanks everyone. Catch you next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.